0: Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Arts Roundup which this week takes a look at the lives of some famous people and the talented people who write about and photograph them. We'll also investigate how manipulating light can change your view of the world for the better and catch up with some artists doing riveting things in exhibition spaces. In this edition, the niece of film superstar Richard Burton talks about his family life and a biography of his life co-written with her father David Jenkins, Richard Burton's older brother. We drop in on artist Ian Walter at 10 Green Street and encounter political art that attacks the sexist nature of public statues. Renowned photographer Boleslaw Lutaslawski gives us a glimpse of what makes his iconic photographic portraits of Europe's most famous arts figures so special. We sample the second illuminate festival as it lights up city landmarks using light technology in new ways with artworks carrying energy saving messages. And painter Peter Hawksby talks on his works at changing spaces in Norfolk Street. no doubt remember your own personal favourite moments in the career of film superstar Richard Burton as one of the greatest acting talents ever to hit the stage and silver screen. Be it in John le Carre's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or Edward Albee's Who's Afraid Of Virginia Woolf, Look Back In Anger or perhaps a Tits and Toga epic, there's really no one who could match him for gem-cutting vocal precision, dramatic range and intelligent British masculinity and combined with Elizabeth Taylor unforgettable sexual chemistry. His formidable Shakespeare performances, playing an unrivalled Hamlet, or at times even alternating nightly playing the roles of Iago and then Othello, are a matter of theatrical legend. But there's another side to Richard Burton's life that's less well known, and it's quite amazing to find out about it in the tight-knit world of the Cambridge bubble. Richard Burton's niece, Sue Rogers, kindly took time out with Arts Roundup to reflect on her uncle's extraordinary life from the perspective of his brother David Jenkins and Richard's Welsh family. When did you first kind of get to know him as an uncle? Were you very young at the time? Um,
1: he used to come and visit us mm. and it was always a big event. Mm. And the neighbours were always very interested in these visits. Mm. It was close to him. It was the only time, actually, that I spent... Spent any length of time with him, which is when they were making *The Taming of the Shrew* in 1966. I was sixteen, and um, we we had been supposed to go on holiday to Switzerland, but my mother was ill, so we had to cancel that. And then there was a family funeral, and Richard, we used to call him Uncle Rich, they called him Rich, the brothers and sisters came over and he said, you, you couldn't go to Switzerland, that's a real shame. Come out to Rome, come and stay with us. So we spent two weeks in Rome with Richard and Elizabeth and with her children, her, her three children and their joint adopted daughter Maria. So we did have a bit of a taste of what family life was like for them then. And that was that was the closest I think I ever got to him. And did
0: you get on with Elizabeth Taylor's children? What were they
1: like? Yeah, they well, they were younger. Um, Michael and Philip were the sons of Michael Wilding. <laughs> they were about
2: 12 hmm. and
1: 10 or something. And Liza, Liza Todd, the daughter of Mike Todd, was nine. Mm. Mike Todd died tragically in a plane crash. um, Otherwise, Mm. I'm not sure she would have had so many husbands after that if he'd (laughs) lived. But that's just my fantasy, perhaps. I don't know. And then Maria was adopted. She had been in an orphanage, and she had had a serious disfigurement. But they paid for this to be put right, and she became a dancer. So that was a wonderful sort of happy ending
0: story um i've been reading your um biography um of richard burton's life um, from the point of view of um your your father david jenkins it was my dad's Uh, biography uh, and and you basically brought it together by by, yeah i I kind of ghosted it Uh, um, it's a fantastically um interesting story um which basically tells what richard was like from um boyhood um one thing that i'd like to clear up immediately is what is lava bread because i gather that richard burton uh, and your whole family um ate la- lava bread for breakfast and it was mm. described as Welsh caviar. What is it exactly?
1: Right, it's made from seaweed. Mm. I I would have needed to prepare this because I'm not an expert on lava bread, but it mm. is quite a speciality. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and in the part of Wales that I grew up in, there was a tradition of the women from Penclough's um, walking the five miles to Swansea to take the bread to market, so it was very... Special special edition, yes.
0: Richard enjoyed it. Love it. Now uh, you gave an account, a, a fantastic account, um, in the book of um, his, his childhood um, in a Welsh um, valley, mm. um, and he had quite an extraordinary childhood, didn't he? Really, because yeah, um, he he was um, somebody um, who it, the, 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 the town was called Pont. How do you say it? Pontyddivenn. Pond- Pond- Pontyddivenn, and. Um, Basically, um, he was someone who um, who very quickly um, learned to um, use um, his talents from reading the scriptures and doing things in church. Um, How how did he begin doing that in the first place?
1: Well, he certainly enjoyed performing. (laughs) And he used to go to chapel. The crucial thing about his childhood, of course, is that his mother died when he was two. And so there were lots of children in the family. There were 13 altogether, though two died in infancy. So there were 11. He was the 10th. And um, you can imagine the absolute horror over mm-hmm. losing their mother mm-hmm. so he went to live with his with the oldest sister mm-hmm. my auntie Sis uh,
0: and, and Sis he, he had a great attachment to didn't yeah, he because um, she, she yeah. kind of in in some ways replaced your mother in his life didn't he, yes, he Yeah, completely yeah, yeah, she became his, his mother
1: way. but she had only just got married mm-hmm. to... he,
0: he was someone who read avidly didn't he he, he had an enormous um, um, thirst for knowledge yes um, he did he was and very
1: literary very well-known. very very
0: literary and very yeah, bright uh, and that basically fueled his dramatic skills because he read all the way through his life and he? he was a very yes, intellectual person really in many ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 And he was uh,
0: a great storyteller. Mm. Um, now, um, his career, I mean, he, he, his career was very much set up by his school teachers, wasn't it? Um, and he took Philip yeah. Burton's name um, by Depole uh, w- w- as a stage name, didn't he? Um, he did, mm, mm. yes. C- can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that he used to do? Because um, as well as being someone who read the scriptures, went to chapel and, 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 and read... Um, he also got into um, lots of trouble as well, didn't he?
1: He was he was a bit of a troublemaker and he was very popular with the girls. Mm. My auntie sis used to talk about queues of girls coming mm. to the house to, mm. to see if he was there, to mm. wait for him. She mm. got rather indignant sometimes because she thought he treated them rather badly. But, mm. you know, he was a very good-looking yeah, young yeah, man yeah. and he was very popular.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, he, he took some time out from school um, as a boy um, and became... He to work in the co-op. Uh, and during that time, he, he was somebody who was very much a, uh, someone who got into rugby and, and, and drinking and smoking. And then...
1: Probably started later. Later, uh, yes, he did yeah, what yeah. boys of his um, age would And do. then
0: he was kind of... Um, uh, he, he went back to school after that, didn't he? Yeah. He went back to school, yes. Mm.
1: Times were hard mm. financially. My auntie Sis, who effectively brought him up, got married and they had two daughters of their own. Mm. And um, it wasn't easy. So they, they this, is a, this is a delicate matter because nobody really wanted him to leave school. Mm. But leave school he did. And then it was arranged that he went back to school and that he actually moved in to live with this English teacher, Philip Burton, for a time, who really schooled him Mm. and trained him.
0: Uh, And those two elements, basically, are partly misspent youth Mm-hmm. And a good education and a good teacher to set it up as the perfect mm-hmm. foundation for an acting career, isn't well, it? Really, I mean, to take on roles like Hamlet, which of course mm-hmm. brought him in incredible acclaim and and the attention of some of the most famous people in society yes. at the time. Yes, um, I mean, and so. Philip Burton was the was the catalyst to all of that, he wasn't was. he?
1: There's one there's one moment that mm-hmm. really stands yeah, out yeah. in my memory the, where he was taking part in some play. I can't even remember the name of the play, mm-hmm. but he just had to sweep the floor. I don't think um, he had any lines, or so he had a very very tiny part, Mm -hmm. and he made such an impact with this sweeping the floor or whatever he did <laughs> and the expression on his face and that it was really noticed and it was picked up on
0: hmm. he actually stole the scene as, yes, uh, just exactly. by sweeping uh, um, the, the floor yeah, you remember that um, and then he went the into um, radio plays um, Dr Faustus was one of the first things he did She he had that wonderful voice didn't mm. he um, yes, that just voice, um, that had um, so much in it um, and for you I mean everybody's seen a Richard Burton film and for me I just when I when I was young, when I first came to Richard he was just the best actor. I, I, I couldn't. Really? I watched him the again and again so and again. No. But no. for you, Under Milk Wood was important. Is that because um, yeah. Dylan Thomas, who he met at Oxford, was uh, an important figure in terms of your interest in life? Why, why was that? Um, uh,
1: I just think Under Milk Wood uh, is. Mm an amazing piece of work. Yeah. And I have... Um, D- Dylan Thomas fascinates me. He should have been called Dylan, really, yeah. but he yeah. chose to be called Dylan because he didn't want to be called yeah. Delwan yeah. at school, which is an interesting point. And I just think that Richard did that narrator's part so brilliantly. Yeah. I, I could listen to it again and again. Yeah. I, I do go yeah. back to it, actually. So it is one of my favourites. Mm-hmm. And it's so... Um, so very Welsh, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: It's just a wonderful and, piece and obviously of his skills. skills. He went into the Royal Air Force, um, and he used all of that, didn't he, in his army personas and his war films because he had that mm, experience in the Royal think Air Force. He did. And then, and then Oxford. Um, he to, had to a short, go, short yeah. time in Oxford. Did you actually get to meet people like? Um, Uh, Dylan Thomas, film stars like um, Richard Harris and Michael Caine and things like that. Was that something that happened occasionally in your life? um, Um, Not to me Mm -hmm. so much, Mm -hmm.
1: but my auntie Hilda's house, Mm -hmm. this was the old Jenkins family home Mm -hmm. where my grandfather lived, actually, until he died. Um, They they used to go there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't unusual for famous um, people and colleagues and... Mm. Fellow actors of Uncle Rich to go there mm. and visit Anthony Hopkins. Actually, yeah. that's the name no. I was looking for. Yeah. He he used to go there quite a lot. Albie oh, mm. is not alive now. Mm. There's just one brother left now, mm. Graham, mm. the youngest one, mm. the one who mm. whose mother mm. died. Mm. Um, it's very soon after he was born. So what? Richard's little brother, he's the only one
0: still alive. Oh, and what were the moments that you remember particularly enjoyed sharing with him? Because um, you know he was a person who had a, a very interesting private life. He he was a very literary person, someone who read widely. Mm. What kind of things did he, 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 he read and what were his politics and what kind of things did you politics. share with him?
1: It's an interesting question. He never really talked about politics. He talked about social class a lot. Mm-hmm. I can remember one of the things he used to talk about when we were in Rome, which is the only extended mm-hmm. period I've ever spent with him. He he always used to say that he had a lot of time for the working class and for the aristocracy, or, or at least for the very... Not so much the wealthy, but I don't know the the people at the top. But he had no time for the middle classes, and he had no time for the sort of snobbishness that you find in the acting Mm. world quite a lot. Mm. He was very dismissive of that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But he never he was very loyal to his working class roots, Mm. and I don't think I ever heard him describe himself as a socialist but i certainly think his politics would have been more to the left than the right but i i don't think he was ever very active politically mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. But he certainly had things mm. he cared about. Mm. Mm-hmm. He cared about
0: the family very much. He, he was a man of letters as well, wasn't he? Because in the book you you, you mm. have lots of his letters, correspondence with his, um, oh, his letters, family. Yes. And yes. he seems and like um, so, him, someone yeah, who writes um, nice letters kept in touch with his family. He was mm-hmm. very keen on, on on looking after them as much as yes, possible. He was. What What kind of impact did he, the ups and downs of his public life have on you as a family there?
1: Well, when Elizabeth first <laughs> appeared on the scene a lot of the family were very, very upset. Um, Particularly my uncle Ivor, who worked very closely with him and travelled with him and lived with him. And he and his wife got very close to Sybil. And it was quite a long time ago, you know, in those days divorce and marriage breakup wasn't as common, nowhere near as common as it is now. So people, I think, the family at first thought this will blow over, it won't last... He'll, he'll go back to Sybil, and obviously my auntie Sybil was mm. absolutely distraught. Mm. She had two little girls, mm. one of them was quite seriously mm. disturbed, and um, it was dreadful. But then very quickly it became apparent that this relationship with Elizabeth wasn't just going to go away. Mm. It was there to stay, mm. and Elizabeth was very much accepted in the family, mm. Mm. More so than yeah.
0: community. I mean, what was it like being in uh, in this Welsh village when the superstar kind of arrived? Was your status sort of changed as a family?
1: My biggest memory of Uncle Rich visiting yeah. is coming to our house, was, not yeah. in Pontre de Ven. Yeah, yeah. Obviously he well, went there as well, yeah. but I don't think I was ever in Pontre de Ven when he was there. But I do have a strong memory of him coming to see us. And all the neighbours being very interested, and people coming in and want, especially when Elizabeth was around, and wanting to sit in the chair that she had sat in. So all that kind of thing. I'm sure that in the early days, when the whole possibility of um, them break of Richard and Elizabeth breaking up happened, then he had a few pep talks from yeah, the older yeah. brothers and the older sisters. You, know, you really shouldn't be doing this. Think of your family, but. Yeah, it wasn't long before he managed to convince them that this was going to happen. Mm, mm. So I think I think the over mm. oh the overwhelming feeling was one of pride. Yeah, yeah, of yeah, real yeah, pride. And yeah, yeah. um, um, the absolute mm. shock when mm. he died so suddenly mm. at fifty eight. Mm-hmm. I remember the moment because I was on holiday with my mm. father at the time. We were in um in a Pembrokeshire mm. holiday resort. Mm. And mm. the news came mm. from mm. my uncle Verdon. There was mm. a phone call from Uncle Verdon. and uh, my dad was absolutely devastated, mm. totally devastated. Mm-hmm. He could hardly believe
0: it. It was a it very, happened. it was a very turbulent life all the way through, wasn't it? So much yeah. happened. The last part of your book um, deals yeah. with 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 um, what happened to the rather somber um, mm. last chapter in his life. Yes. Um, what 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 was all that like?
1: My direct link with the drinking was in Rome actually he wasn't to be fair to him he wasn't drinking particularly heavily then there were mo- there were times when he was mm. actually and it definitely affected his mood and that was when he would get very petty mm. and do crazy things like my friend i had a 16 year old friend who was staying there with me i mean this is this is not the end of his life but this this scene was set quite a bit earlier, because he would do things like ask his driver to race Elizabeth's car home, Mm. that kind of silly thing. But towards the end, I mean, obviously he recognised that he had a drink problem. I remember one excruciating interview, which I could hardly bear to watch, on Parkinson, where he was very nervous all the way through the interview. He was smoking Mm -hmm. all the way through, and he was talking about the drinking. Mm. He believed rightly or wrongly that the only way he could control it was through abstinence. So Mm. he used to get on the wagon, Mm. as he would put it, for quite a long time at a stretch. But then he'd have one drink Mm. and it would all start all over Mm. again. Mm -hmm. So he did find it very hard to control. But the lure of Hollywood was quite a strong one. Mm. So, yes, he he did get quite high he was he was quite busy towards the very end he had made private lives that's Uh, it uh, Noel Coward's private uh, lives lives. he had done with Elizabeth in New York and he also made 1984 Uh. um Very close to the end of his life. Mm -hmm. That was the year in which he died, 1984,
0: which Um, happened. Two two moments, Um, perhaps you can give me. Your favourite private moment with Richard and your favourite screen moment.
1: Oh, gosh. I actually liked, even though there were lots of problems with it Mm -hmm. and he was too old for the part, Mm -hmm. I liked Look Back in Anger, Mm -hmm. which is one of the early films that Mm -hmm. he made. Yeah. So I suppose m- one of my favorite screen moments would be that moment in that film mm. even though I can see that there were lots of problems and mm. he probably was too over the path. Yeah. and then Virginia Woolf is the other film that made a huge impact on me yeah. and it was also a very um a very uh sort of good replica of what was going on there was such close parallels right. of what was going on in his in his marriage yeah to Elizabeth, uh, so it was very alive and yeah, very uh, it painfully yeah. so. Privately, I think it would have been those times over meals in Rome when he would just tell stories, yeah. uh-huh. which I could recall one of them, but I just have a, a, a great memory of his just uh-huh. being very relaxed, total opposite of uh-huh. the way he was in that interview, which I found uh-huh. so painful to watch uh-huh. with Parkinson, uh-huh. because when he was relaxed, he could just hold the floor, and it was quite magical. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking when I was 16, I was slightly in love with him, mm. you know, because it, he was somebody to be proud of, mm. it, uh, uh, despite all the painful moments and the depressions and the mm. drinking and the, mm. and the heartbreak. He was somebody to be very proud of. But yes, the uh, vo- his uh, voice uh, and his uh, talent. and.
0: Suhra, just did. thank you for sharing such um, a, a, a wonderful uh, story with me. Oh, for, well, thank uh, you. Uh, thank yeah. you for inviting me. German artist Gunther von Hagen shocked the world when he exhibited real human bodies covered with lacquer in his exhibition Space Body Worlds. Well, if you're passing 10 Green Street, try checking out a skull covered with strips of Serrano ham in the window which plays with the same unnerving theme to try and draw your interest in. It's the work of artist Ian Walter, a second year student at Cambridge School of Art, who's exhibiting with changing spaces. Inside, you'll find a row of shoulder-high plinths that each have a different bust-like head-on, a metal spring that move engagingly when you tread on the carpet. Ian, who gave up a successful business career to develop his art, is concerned with political art installations. Ian, what we've got here um, is an extremely interesting um, structure. Um, It looks like, um, I mean, it's an interactive thing, um, a kind of star chamber of establishment judges' heads or something like that. What's the idea behind this? Uh, It's almost the exact
3: opposite of that. So my my start point was the fact that when you see bronze heads in public, they're invariably men. Hmm. Uh, They're named, and they're named for their status and their achievements. But if you see women, they're almost always anonymous, nude, whole-bodied. So there's a definite gender divide. So what I've done with this is I've taken four uh, men who could be judges, as okay. you say, but they're anonymous. Yeah. Uh, and I've taken the bronze out, yeah. so they're, they're just made of resin. Mm. And then they're mounted on springs, so mm. they're slightly comical. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Yes? Um, and also, th- they've each got a, a plinth, a white plinth uh, pillar... Um, and um, how did you make these these heads? Because they, they look as though they're made of some kind of um, plastic or rubber. Uh, first of all, how, resin. A resin. So yeah.
3: the the heads I've modelled oh, from life. Yeah, yeah. So I've had uh, I've cajoled yeah, friends yeah. into sitting for me. Three hours a, w- uh, a time for five times, Yeah. Uh, and I model their head life sizing in clay, mm-hmm. and then it's cast in yeah. resin. Mm-hmm. So I can then produce as many of them as I as I want to.
0: And now, now these wonderful heads, because they look they look wonderfully kind of um, like middle-aged men leaning forward um, on and the nodding. springs. Um, but that, there's also um, you've got something underneath the carpet here that makes them move. What, what's that exactly?
3: Uh, so there's a, a red carpet which. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is really inspired by the room this is a beautifully wood panelled room Mm. so it looks rather like a a gentleman's club or a boardroom so I thought a red carpet dissecting the room Um, but underneath it are pressure pads Mm -hmm. which rock the plinths only by a couple of degrees but that's enough to set the heads off nodding Mm. which is just comical it makes people smile
0: it makes you wonder what it is that they're trying to observe as well doesn't it i mean they they could be observing a small child or or a phenomenon Oh yes or this one on on the end is (coughs) is
3: craning his neck to see perhaps what the others are doing
0: yeah yeah um and you've got two on one side are in a kind of olive green color and the other two in a kind of yellow orange sort of what would you call that alabaster marble sort of color yeah that's a good description
3: of it um and that that was a complete accident mm. just that different manufacturers make resins that are slightly different color you you, you hardly ever see raw resin like this you yeah. normally see it with a stone powder in it or a, a, a bronze powder uh whereas this is just the raw resin and when they when i took these out mm. i was really surprised that they were different mm-hmm. colors but then i thought actually i quite like it because it makes you wonder if there's a hierarchy mm. or or a different age or yeah, I like the the the, the, the uh, nebulous nature of it.
0: Is this recent work? Did you do it particularly for this exhibition, or is this something? Yeah, it's you, constructed here. It, so, so, so you it, used you looked at the room first, uh, did you before yes. you did it? Yes. What a super idea! Yeah, yeah
3: <laughs> uh, and this beautiful panelled pen- room just cries out for yeah this S- sort of an installation. Yeah, well, and changing spaces who've provided yeah. it uh, had given us this space uh, for three weeks yeah. as a project space to build work within, which is an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: That's, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for sharing that with me. Thank it was you. A super thing to, to drop in. It, it's number 10 Green Street, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, 10 Green Street. If you're passing 10 Green Street, which used to be the old music shop, um, then take a peek through. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. Thank you. Michael Owen, also a student with Cambridge School of Art, is exhibiting upstairs. His work looks at visual tricks playing on the contents of a room. You've got some really interesting stuff here. These sort four of symbols that look perhaps a little bit like the, the symbols you get on ESP cards or something like that. Mm. Um, is that where the idea originated
4: from? Um, not at all, really. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of uh, I was interested in the fragmentation of shapes originally. It mm. uh, was a couple of years ago now, um, and the fragmentation of imagery in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that eventually I became overwhelmed with colour and, and vibrant gestural mark making. Mm. And then as to question a way to question my own practice, I then minimalised that down Mm. to the kind of work you're seeing now. Mm -hmm. What are you hoping people are going to notice when they come in and look at this? Um, If you can describe um,
0: the 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 works are basically um, those are canvases with um, uh, sort of um, what would you call it white uh, Uh, primer, right? right, right right Primer, and then um, interesting. Shapes just in black
4: and white um, on
0: them. Um, How does the idea sort of develop through the the work?
4: Um, Well, the work is a direct response to the room that it's placed in. Mm -hmm. Um, The the canvases are placed on pallets that I I made from from and reduced down from bigger pallets. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the idea is it's exploring and and and, and relating to the space directly um, because it's quite a unique space with the the fire, the grand fireplace there. Mm If I placed canvases just around the room, uh, they, they wouldn't have related well to the fireplace and the fireplace would mean, end up being more of a distraction mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and originally, the one with the triangle, the main, um, the main influence was how far could I push the boundaries in lazy art in a way, I suppose. Yeah. Um, to, to only prime a canvas where you're going to paint on it mm. and then where you paint on it, not even to finish the triangle, the shape that you want to put on it. So. Yeah. So, so you're
0: looking. I mean, the, the room is one of these wonderful Cambridge rooms that is not geometrically yes. square in any way. It's, no, it's almost hexagonal, um, and uh, you've got these pallets and, and things and, and gaps, recesses um, with wood shapes around them Basically, you're reflecting the physical environment into the art, basically, yes, to create exactly, a combined yeah. effect of the two things, which gives you a different space, doesn't it? All Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: Um, um, no, it's definitely. It's a uh, I wanted the work, you know, because I did have, originally, I, I included several, several paintings in this, in this space along with these works. But I wanted the viewer to come in and then be immersed in the room as an entire piece. <laughs> and when they looked at, I mean, I put a painting on, that far, on the far wall, okay. um, And it was just a painting. So Mm -hmm. when someone looked at it, they were then back in a gallery as opposed to being in the space Mm -hmm. and enjoying the relationship between the work and the room. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105.
0: Every now and again when you're leafing through a top-notch glossy magazine or reading an international broad street paper, you find a a once-in-a-decade photograph that really captures a famous person in a rare moment in time when their guard is down and they're just being themselves in their own world. Taking truly iconic shots that encapsulate a celebrity's current life story isn't easy, and very few photographers can do it well. I've been talking to renowned Polish photographer Boleslaw Lutoslawski on the art of portraiture with celebrities, with which he made a name for himself in the international media by photographing Europe's most prominent arts figures. Bo grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Krakow, Poland, where he studied at Lotz Film School, and he later moved to the UK after a highly successful photography exhibition in London in 1980. Now, he regularly gives talks on photography and lectures on modern art in Cambridge as an art historian. He says the successful people he's met in a tough and unforgiving world share a key in common. The ability to observe, listen, stay truthful, be honest, be instinctive and above all be fearlessly creative. What have you been
5: doing in the past and, and what brought you to Cambridge? Well, I was born in Poland mm. and I uh, studied uh, in film film college uh, and uh, art history as well. Mm. Uh, But throughout this time, I worked as a photographer. Mm -hmm. And in my mid-twenties, I started to travel to the West, which wasn't so easy because it was Eastern Bloc country. But then I I did go on trips and uh, I learned a lot about Europe and culture, and it was a wonderful experience, and uh, then I stayed.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and you became a photographer after leaving, uh, basically at Lotz University for Film School, wasn't it, yes. originally? Yes, yes. Um, and um, what were your experiences in, in um, uh, photography behind the Iron Curtain when such things were perhaps
5: a little bit verboten, as it were? Uh, yeah. it's, uh, but Because I was involved with portraits, yeah. it didn't matter. Uh, the authorities in Poland, in Eastern Bloc country, in Poland especially, they didn't care for arts. If you like, <laughs> arts was you know it's irrelevant. It, it, they knew they felt safe with arts. So because I worked with artists and dancers and operas it didn't matter.
0: You went on obviously to to do um, your your photographs have been used in in very famous publications like Newsweek um, The Independent Vogue and Harper and Queen so um, uh, when were you first picked up as a photographer that people sort of recognised and thought well um, you know these are photographs we really must have
5: when did that point come in your career? Well I came to uh, London Mm. and and I stayed at that time Mm. it was 1980 Mm. Uh, to show Show about a hundred of my portraits mm. in London, mm. so this was a starting point, and then I met other people. It's sort of like the word spread. Mm-hmm. Um, we just,
0: uh, I, I just witnessed um, a talk that you gave um, the other evening um, called "The Power of Our Minds," which was um, a very interesting photographic journey through your work, um, which basically had um, the thread of the, the the talk that you gave was about people um, who um, fulfilled their
5: their personal dreams and what brought you round to giving talks of that sort it wasn't a long time ago that i realized that they are the hardest ones to work with because they're so uh, open and fulfilled so it's almost like they they have no need when we leave when we are stressed if you like it's more intriguing (laughs) and if somebody is so laid back and calm and achieves everything Yes, I'm here in front of them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, you photograph some very famous people, um, among them Tom Stoppard, um, Simon Callow, uh, Glenda Jackson, uh, John Peel, um, and even George Martin, um, yes. and um, you always ha- you have a sort of system for doing that, don't you? Because um, you go in and you meet these people and you do a sitting with them. How long does the sitting take before you actually start doing the, the, the photography? Uh,
5: It tends to be quite quick. Mm. Uh, All those names, a part of one, Mm. uh, were extremely uh, open and gentle. So it wasn't even any need to to get to know them, so to speak. Mm. In some cases, I didn't have much time anyway. With Glenda Jackson it was about 20 minutes hmm. and John Peel maybe half an hour, uh, So that's, that, but it's a good length of time, I like it. What goes through your mind when you've got Tom Stoppard
0: in front of you um, and you've only got a short amount of time, you've got to pick something up, what do you do?
5: It's instinctive. <laughs> uh, it's I know that I want to create a, a portrait which is true to him. Hmm and it's almost like you meet somebody for the first time and you know it's amazing and it's intense you don't actually think much about it. You'd rather go by your instinct. And a lot of it is obvious. Essentially, you just um, um, you you have to stay in charge. You have to give an aura uh, of authority, but also aura of, of softness. And I always feel that I, I want to show them great respect, but it doesn't mean they can do what they want. They have to know that they have to do what I tell them to do. Mm. So in a sense, I put them in a situations which are, Unexpected. So mm. they react in an unexpected way for themselves, which means they open up. Mm. It was uh, a, a charming situation with uh, John Peel when, mm. I, uh, when I met him. Mm. And I met him in a tiny uh, office in, in BBC. Mm. Uh, I've met him for the first mm. time and the only time. And he put a record on mm. and I said, I, I switched it off. I took it off and mm. I said I want to work in silence. And said, but it's my 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 program for tonight. And I said, well, tough. And but it's not that I was aggressive. Mm. I just made that change in his environment mm. for this time, mm. and so he had to pay attention to my. Mm myself. Well, the, the, these are people in a broad spectrum of disciplines.
0: Obviously one, oh, of the, yeah. one of the great images you had was of Glenda Jackson at the point where she is, was just mm. basically leaving her acting career mm. and going um, into politics mm. um, and you caught her at that moment when um, basically she was reinventing herself yes. um, which was a big change in, in her career and mm. you, you kind of got a very iconic photograph there but also um, there was um, one of her Polish distant um, who, who was that reading yes. Sławomir um, Mrożek, a playwright. reading um, a copy of George Orwells mm. um, 1984 mm. um, and somehow you managed to get the flavor um, of that across in your photos. because I don't know how okay. you do that that's your gift though isn't it to to yeah. to, to <laughs> communicate the the whole person with us a, a moment in time
5: which is absolutely great it wasn't uh, posed it wasn't planned he mm, just mm, read mm. that book at that time <laughs> this was that's how it was but now most of
0: this work that we've been talking about is available um, in in books which you published as well yes. Um one of them is called Portrait Photographer, yeah. and that has a stupendously good photograph of your wife on the front. Here, doesn't it? whose <laughs> yes. uh, name is Grasner, isn't it? Right? Grasner, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, a really fabulous book. But you've also brought another one in here for me to have a look at. What's yes, this book about? It is uh, uh,
5: on the same sort of um, subject, but it's in Polish. And hmm. uh, This one is called Alchemia Portretu, which is Alchemy of Portraiture, and it, it was extraordinary because a, a lady on the front is a, a portrait of a lady. It was called Bem Lahand. and she and she studied here in Cambridge. And I took it when she was, I think, nineteen. Mm. Then we lost touch. Then we met once again in Cambridge because she came here again for a couple of days. And then she went to live in Australia. She writes books, mm. amazing books, and uh, we lost touch. And I wanted to u- to use it on the front. It was like even. Uh, when the book was being they and they worked on the book uh, in Poland, they said, "Oh, well, maybe we'll use another portrait." And I said, "No, you're not going to use another portrait." Well, we thought about it. And I said, "No," so they used this one. And then the book came out in June, and and um, and uh, probably three weeks later, I got emailed from her. From Bem, Bem, Bem Lahan, that she was in Warsaw, walked on the street, and saw the book in a bookshop on the cover. And I said, I bought the book, but it was incredible to see myself. <laughs> so it was a, a wonderful experience, and we're back in touch.
0: Bo um, Lutus Swaski, thank you very much indeed uh, for thank coming you. in. The work speaks for itself, I can recommend it to <laughs> anyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Cambridge's profile as an international art destination was significantly boosted this month as 16 breathtaking art installations using cutting edge light technology lit up public spaces and landmarks in the city centre. The illuminate festival of light in its second year has also featured music concerts, magic shows and workshops and has doubled in size and popularity. The recent appointment of Dipak Misri as an expert in collaborations between Art and Business as Executive Director and Juliet Bowmaker as Artist Liaison Officer signified that it's now become an annual fixture and has attracted prestigious new sponsors including Grand Arcade, Panasonic, John Lewis Partnership and Cambridge Bid. Founder Alessandra Cajano and Chairman Hugh Pennell presented an event launch to the sound of violinist Alija Smiatana.
6: Incredibly pleased about the response that we've got in the last 12 months. It's been amazing and I really hope it's going to keep growing this rate, really.
0: During your speech, you talked about making Cambridge um, an international art destination. Um, that's a really big idea that a lot of people share. Um, how do you envisage your particular plank in that as working?
6: We want to keep working with artists not just local artists but also get more international artists involved in what we do here in Cambridge and uh, and really showcase what is great here.
0: Take me through some of the things that people are going to see tonight on the tour they're about to set off on.
6: Okay, then one of the most amazing things is going to be the King's Parade show that's um, thanks to Susie Olksak. And pulsar lighting, all uh, coordinated by uh, Anagram Production, and it's a color-changing um, pattern onto the uh, King's Wilking screen. So that's pretty spectacular. And um, something else happening is the Guildhall will see a giant game of knots and crosses, and the audience can interact with the building. Also, we have um, a color-changing clock here on the. Um, John Lewis window on the Downing Street side, and we have on the facade of the Grand Arcade a a projection mapping show.
0: Okay, those those are things that people can immediately sort of engage with, but what's clever about the technology behind those things?
6: Well, it's all about eco-efficiency. So, the majority of technology involved is really, in the spaces we're talking about, low carbon innovation. And most of it is actually invented here in Cambridge
4: there are three things that we're mashing together. There is the artistic creative, there is the low low carbon technology innovation, and there's the whole business about energy efficiency. And eventually people will come to understand that we can't afford to have all these lights on, and that we are going to understand about energy efficiency. And what we're trying to do subtly, is by using creativity and by using innovation, put people into a place where they think a little bit more carefully about lighting, as one of the things that we absorb a lot of energy with. So the creative and the innovative with a low carbon message is a really important and indeed probably unique way of trying to represent light in this context. And how do you feel that
0: the local artists have actually responded to the whole idea? They
6: responded very well, not just the, the technology itself, but also to the locations. and um, This is really what made the festival so special. What a
0: fantastic launch event. Thank you both very much indeed. Bill Monday attracted attention as a man wearing a spectacular light tech bow tie made from electronic circuit boards and flashing lights to draw people into his new networking tool.
7: We, uh, we're in the what's known as the interactive events business. And uh, what we do is we have these special badges. People have these badges at an event. And when they tap with each other, they can exchange their contact details. And it's really simple, and people love it. Uh, we've created a new social interaction, which is the icebreaking interaction and uh, you know, people are getting more and more addicted to it.
0: Uh, it's uh, it's uh, networking at lightning speed. Absolutely. Um, th- this, I mean, just to describe them, they're, they're lovely, smooth, um, uh, plastic um, uh, name cards. That's right. And all you have to do is just touch Tra- and that's it, you've got it. Yeah, you, know? you have to
7: do a little bit of a tap mm. and that tap makes sure that it works. You get a light and a buzz afterwards, mm. means that you've done it and you've connected
0: with somebody. Mm. Um, How important is it um, to see um, light technology being given um, something of a forum in Cambridge? Light
7: adds so many different angles to everything and light illuminates things and and because of the way the eye perceives everything you sort of get a whole different perception of what objects are and I think what Cambridge is doing uh, here at Illuminate is fantastic.
0: Cambridge Beard, a new organisation designed to oil the wheels of commerce in the city by assisting with PR, marketing and business support, is a sponsor and supplied bowler-hatted city ambassadors to guide people to the attractions, his spokesman Edward Quigley. One
4: of the first words that you hear associated with Cambridge is innovation. Mm-hmm. It's always what you hear, yeah. whether it's the science, it's biomed, it's the technology. I think there's a lot of innovation in Cambridge. I think that it goes beyond the traditional sectors. I think that our retail and independents are innovative in the way they approach their business. We've a thriving city centre. In fact, there's been a, a, a information recently that's confirmed that Cambridge has the lowest amount of vacancies in terms of shops in the country. So there's a lot of positives about Cambridge. The bid is about supporting those and reinforcing them. We've achieved a lot, but there's a hell of a lot more to come.
1: You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105.
0: Venturing down Norfolk Street later today, I fancy a bit of an adventure. You might drop into Changing Spaces Gallery to meet painter Peter Hawksby and view his latest set of paintings. On his exhibition's last day, he's best known locally for his charcoal drawing of rock pools in Cornwall, which recently exhibited at Williams Art. But this time, he's been working with oils and acrylics on canvas and he takes us on a journey through confined spaces in some twenty works, working with the loose theme of exploration inside a pyramid and discovering a series of secret chambers, with which he takes us on a journey towards abstraction. Peter studied at the Hull College of Art and later at the Slade. Um, In this current exhibition you're working on paper with canvas using um, oils um, and acrylics. Can you tell me how this exhibition um, came about?
8: It goes right back to 1967 Mm -hmm. when I first went to Hull Mm -hmm. and my first sort of conscious stab at achieving a style obviously was based on a current fashion of art. Mm -hmm. Which at that time people like Robin Denny, John Hoyland, and the American abstract expressionists were all vogue. And I liked their work, so I just jumped into that. Mm-hmm. So it does start a long time ago. As a way of working purely flat field colour imagery, it comes and goes over, the, over my sort of life for the last 40 years, interspersed with other preoccupations, mm-hmm. really. Um, until about Four or five years ago, um, I had spent nearly 15 years working only in black and white Mm -hmm. on canvas, and all the work was based on studies of rocks and water from sketches done in Cornwall. Mm
2: -hmm.
8: And that came to a sort of natural pause, Mm -hmm. and I decided I would go back to exploring color. Mm -hmm. And this, as a vehicle for that, was just what I needed. Mm -hmm. Again, a flat field. Going right back to the degree course, <laughs> yeah. I chose to write my thesis on Vermeer mm-hmm. um, as the master of the Dutch genre painting that I admired the most for his work in tight spaces mm-hmm. and the classical sort of stillness but nevertheless very measured spaces that he constructed. <laughs> I always just loved his work. So. It, it's that same preoccupation the rock pools okay the types of rock pools i did go for are enclosed mm. spaces mm. but the actual approach is much more calligraphic and mm. gestural mark based because mm. that isn't what happens here
0: um, to do the rock pools th- those are drawings using charcoal aren't they? Oh.
8: what happens is i go to cornwall mm. and i would do sketchbooks with pencil charcoal whatever mm. on the spot trouble is my eyes water, you know i 'm mm-hmm. standing there wiping <laughs> i 'm getting wet and i 'm drawing and I, I, even the roughest little scribble, mm-hmm. I will go back to a studio and I will rebuild it in mm-hmm. charcoal usually mm-hmm. and well, then mm-hmm. take it onto probably canvas with brush and paint.
0: What fascinates you about rock pools because you 've done so many of them? Uh,
8: well, the, the funny thing about a rock pool is, what shape is a rock? <laughs> and they are naturally abstract to mm-hmm. me, but they are full of energy, and this counterpoint of movements, of so the water movements and the rock structures, which obviously affect each other, mm-hmm. um, that obviously is plenty to get your teeth into. And the, I never found that there was a lack of variety, because I, I always go back to the same sort of place on the south coast. Yeah. And there, it's it's infinite.
0: Now the theme behind this exhibition is um, basically um, in, enclosed, um, a, a, a sort of um, an exploration for enclosed spaces, which has tied into um, your notions about what it might be like to be inside a pyramid. Uh, this particular uh, batch, yeah.
8: um, last August, I I dug out some old sketchbooks and rediscovered drawings I had done at the Slade in nineteen seventy seventy one um i had bought a book about the structure of the pyramids which fascinated mm. me and did some sort of pieces for environments that yeah. the slayed based on them but there they were in this sketchbook and i i still responded to this feeling of tight spaces corridors light coming around corners the massive weight that you can't see but uh, feel you and know, they're that uns- sort of previously
0: unseen or secret spaces as well that sort yeah. of thing yeah. yes yeah. um
8: yeah that's just an excuse to yeah. get started but it was enough mm. and I started um, working on single smaller sheets of paper uh, I did explain I think the other day that they were all single horizontal mm. sheets I did 20 or 30 mm. of these and chose earthy colors in mm. browns and greys yeah and then after looking at them thinking well I've done something rather obvious here same old stuff comes mm. out then I turned them all vertically I thought oh, I like that much better mm. And then I started pairing them off and creating a narrative between the two halves which opens up so many more possibilities for carrying on with the images. Um, are, are you interested
0: in the palette of um, ancient Egypt? Because there was something like, in the tomb um, paintings, um, in the pyramids and things like that, that they only used about 25 specific colours to create all of the artwork that went in there. Um, and, and are those colours of interest to you, or, or not?
8: Yes, they are, because um, they are, first of all, natural earth-based or dye-based vegetable pigments, yeah. mostly, I would think, of mineral-based pigments. Um, as for 25, I didn't realise there were that many, but my, I rarely get past half a dozen, <laughs> which is all I can cope with. Mm. But, um, yes, uh, like I said, the early ones were deliberately earthy colours, mm. with the odd bright colour to try and, you know, mm. kick it off, mm. so to speak. Mm. Um, which uh, people have responded, you yourself and other people oh, who right. visited this said, they recognize these as being the feeling of Egyptian which wasn't my intention but I'm pleased about. You can link things that aren't physically linked but your eye will jump from mm-hmm. one to the yeah. other so it does take you on a journey mm-hmm. through looking at the paintings um, so it's a very good vehicle for that and it, yes it's a it's a sort of journey towards an abstraction and then hopefully <clears throat> if I've done it well enough <laughs> it clicks back together as a single object so mm. you, you The tension created between the two Hmm. methods of looking at it are what I find exciting to
0: explore. Each image leads to the next one, yeah.
8: Uh, Peter Hawkesby, thank you for a most
0: interesting visit to your gallery.
8: Well, thank you very much. It was a nice surprise when you came in yesterday. (laughs) (laughs)
0: time to take a look at what's coming up in the city in the next couple of weeks. If you're listening to the rerun of this programme, much of this will be out of date. On Saturday the 1st of March, comedy group Gob Squad present Western Society at the Cambridge Junction, a chance to see the whole of human history condensed into just 10 minutes and a colourful portrait of the world we live in. Currently running at Wising Arts in Bourne, the Annals of the 29th Century is a group exhibition of new commissions as part of the Artists in Residence programme, marking a 25th anniversary. Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw opens at the Arts Theatre on Wednesday, the 25th of February, starring Alistair McGowan as Henry Higgins. John Harl and Mark Almond in the Tyburn Tree take to the stage in the Corn Exchange on March the 4th to deliver an epic song cycle looking at London's dark and terrible past, Jack the Ripper and poet William Blake feature. And that's all from Arts Roundup this week. If you have a creative story to tell, please send me an email at simon at cambridge105.fm and I hope you've enjoyed tuning into The Art Dimension on Cambridge 105 Community Radio.
9: And sigh Go long blues I always get that mood indigo Since my baby said goodbye And in the evening when the lights are low I'm so lonely I could cry For there's nobody who cares about me I'm just a poor fool that's bluer than blue can be. When I get that mood, Indigo, I could lay me down and die.